0: You're listening to the free, abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar
1: panel. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This
0: boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now.
1: The new phase we're going into uh, related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it.
0: Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. For November 13th, 2019, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. As observers such as you, dear listener, are no doubt well aware, there are competing narratives about the future pace and progress of energy transition, which we hear almost daily. And it's usually not hard to guess what the bias of each source is champions of energy transition see it happening pretty quickly and tend to emphasize the advances that are being made in technologies, policy, and projects, whereas defenders of the status quo and incumbents in the fossil fuel industry see a long, slow, protracted process of energy transition which doesn't ask much of them, which is why we still hear the likes of Exxon, Shell, and OPEC projecting strong oil demand for decades to come. So is energy transition going to be rapid or gradual? Rather than try to definitively answer that question, a new paper co-authored by Carbon Tracker, a London-based energy and climate think tank, Bloomberg New Energy Finance, and the Rocky Mountain Institute, my employer, explores these competing narratives by contrasting some scenarios for energy transition using some key distinguishing features. Does the scenario emphasize stocks or flows? Does it model technology growth in a linear or exponential fashion? Do they see policy as being static or dynamic? And so on. I thought it offered a thought-provoking way to think about the contrasting narratives on energy transition, so I invited one of the authors to join us on the show and explain it to our listeners. Kingsmill Bond is the energy strategist for Carbon Tracker, and he has used his 25-year career as an equity analyst and strategist at major banking institutions to explore and communicate how energy transition, in his words, is, quote, the most important driver of financial markets and geopolitics in the modern era. At Carbon Tracker, he writes about the impact of the energy transition on financial markets, domestic politics, and geopolitics, and he has authored a series of reports on the myths of the energy transition, looking at the many arguments made by incumbents to deny the reality of change. I have enjoyed his work and have been wanting to get him on the show for a long time, so I'm excited to have him join us today. But before we get to the interview, I just want to take a moment to welcome our latest site licensee, the Energy Web Foundation, a global nonprofit working on blockchain solutions. Energy Web apparently has so many fans of the show, they decided to just buy a license for the whole enterprise. So welcome to all of that fine crew, among which I can count several friends and former colleagues. I'm very pleased to have you on board. And in the news segment of this episode, we'll offer a little coda to Episode 102 by updating the story on the power shutoffs and wildfires that ravaged California in October. We'll revisit Episode 106 with an update on utility planning in South Africa. We'll note a milestone for renewable energy in the UK. We'll take a look at an exciting new battery storage project in New York. And we'll hail some new developments for renewables in Virginia. And now our conversation with Kingsmill Bond, recorded October 8th, 2019. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Kingsmill, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. I think I'd like to start with a look at a paper you recently co-authored along with Jules Kortenhorst, the CEO of Rocky Mountain Institute, and Angus Macrone, the chief editor of Bloomberg New Energy Finance, which most of us refer to as BNEF. I am very familiar with all of your work. I've read and admired your papers for years, since even before you joined Carbon Tracker, I think. I've spent a little time and corresponded with Angus for quite a few years as well, being a long-time fan of the work that BNEF does, particularly the occasional perspective essays that he's co-authored with BNEF founder Michael Liebreich, who was also our guest in episode 85 to talk about Project Bo. And of course, I know Jules because he heads up RMI, which is my employer and where I spend my time when I'm not working on the podcast. So to have all three of you contributing to a paper titled "The Speed of the Energy Transition: Gradual or Rapid Change?" Well. (laughs) It's kind of a no-brainer that I'd want to talk about that. So briefly, this paper holds that we will fall short of the goals under the Paris Agreement if we pursue a gradual energy transition, and that only a rapid transition can allow us to keep the global temperature increase well below 2 degrees Celsius. So why don't we start there? How would you characterize these competing narratives about
1: gradual or rapid change, and who exactly holds these views? So the gradual narrative says that the future of the energy system will be about the same as the past. It's a kind of business as usual narrative. So we need more coal, more gas, more oil, and emissions will carry on rising, but we won't hit the goals of the Paris Agreement. And this, as you would expect, is really the narrative of the incumbents, because of course it lets them carry on doing what they do best. In contrast, the rapid narrative is very different. It says that the future of the energy system will not be the same as the past, that the energy sector, like so many before, will be disrupted by rapid technological change, backed up by policy in the emerging market energy leapfrog that will have a chance of keeping the world below two degrees, but it will be very disruptive for incumbents because – demand for coal and then oil and then gas will peak and decline. And this is a view which tends to be held by outsiders to the system. Again, as so often in transitions, it's outsiders who have a better view than insiders.
0: Yeah. Okay. So all of the major energy agencies and forecasters use scenarios to explore how the future might unfold. And these are usually built on assumptions around energy prices or global energy supply or demand or a particular set of climate policies or something of that sort. And if you look at these forecasts, especially the ones from the oil companies, you'll see what you just said there. You know, they they have a very gradual view of energy transition. So why did you decide to approach this subject from the perspective of contrasting narratives, which essentially reflect how different groups of people think about climate change and the project of energy transition, rather than approaching it from this more empirical basis that scenarios are usually built on?
1: I think the reason why is because we kept on running up against people who would say, well, I have looked at all of the different scenarios and they all say the same, which is that we have a very slow change. Yeah. And then when you asked further, it turned out that they were the scenarios of each of the different oil companies and OPEC and the EIA. And actually, we wanted to point out that there are indeed two narratives here. And I think the other reason we elected for this approach is because – We wanted to avoid getting sucked into a kind of spreadsheet war where people were saying, well, my spreadsheet says this, and your spreadsheet says that, and who really knows? And we wanted to draw out the really big picture differences between the two approaches. And that's what we sought to do here.
0: I wonder if there's a political element to that. I mean, surely there is. Not only should we not be just falling into a hole of spreadsheet wars, but we should not be falling into a a tribal
1: framing either, right? So how do we work around those things? So I agree with you. I mean, it seems to me quite strange that energy has been sucked into the culture wars because ultimately we have one planet, we all want the same thing, which is a healthy planet to live on. And it's quite unhealthy and unhelpful for this discussion, which should be really quite collegiate and we should all be aiming to achieve the same thing, to be sucked into such aggressive debates. So I think, again, what we've sought in this analysis to do is to take out all of that kind of debate and quite dispassionately look at the different arguments on the two sides. Great. Okay. So let's explore these narratives
0: a bit, and we'll use here the framing of the four key factors that you laid out in the paper. The first one you call, what matters, stocks or flows? So how do these two narratives rate what
1: matters? So the gradual narrative Focuses on the areas where it's going to be hard to transition. So, people talk a lot about winter heat and airlines and pet cam and so on. And the argument then is that we will need a complete system change before we can talk about an energy transition. So, if you like, renewables will have to get to a market share of at least 50%. And that clearly is going to take a very, very long time because. Fossil fuels are 80% of global energy supply today. And it seems quite clear from the perspective of the gradual narrative that this is long and slow and difficult. The rapid narrative, in contrast, focuses on marginal change, the moment at which renewables supply the change in demand. And this clearly is considerably easier and considerably faster. Energy demand itself is growing only around one or two percent a year. So it's actually one or two orders of magnitude easier to achieve. Hmm. And advocates of the rapid narrative argue that this peak will happen in the 2020s. This rapid approach is much more similar to what people, such as myself, use in financial markets. So you think about the end of growth, which is about the change in demand, not about the total amount of demand. Hmm. And as you well know, investors in the European electricity sector and the US coal sector have been impacted very dramatically as soon as demand for their core products stopped growing
0: yeah yeah the end of growth seems quite deadly for energy companies and for i just think the entire construct of of economic thinking like essentially our economies our view of things like monetary policy and so on is predicated on the existence of never-ending growth isn't it
1: Oh, well, that's, in fact, a different question. I guess one of the things I find quite interesting about this energy transition, and one of the similarities with what happened 200 years ago in the shift from biomass to fossil fuels, is that actually this new energy source of renewables has a higher energy return on investment than fossil fuels. There's a lot of debate about that statement, but I feel very confident in making it. And Actually, what this means is that this energy transition, in fact, will open up new opportunities for growth, but of course less destructive, less damaging growth than we've had in the past.
0: Hmm. Okay. So would you say that the rapid view is more interested in flows and the gradualist view is more interested in stocks, or am I misinterpreting that?
1: That's it. I mean, it's almost the difference between the academic perspective, which is we need to have a complete transition or a 50% transition, and the financial market perspective, which is tell me when the growth is going to happen, tell me about the first derivative. So it's just a different perspective. And I guess it's different people making the argument, it's different people impacted by the argument. The reason why I and most of my colleagues focus on marginal change on growth is because we have a financial market training.
0: Hmm. Okay. So let's move on to the next feature. And that's whether technology growth will be linear or exponential. How do the two narratives differ on that point?
1: So the gradual approach tends to focus on all of the problems that are going to hold back growth. So people talk about intermittency, they talk about integration, a lack of land, a lack of minerals, that kind of issue. And then they say, well, because of all these problems, growth will be linear. And they then say, well, look, we installed 100 gigawatts of solar panels, for example, in 2018, and we're going to carry on installing about 100 gigawatts a year for the foreseeable future for the next 10 years. So it's growth, but it's just linear growth. Now, the rapid approach is completely different. It says that the costs of renewable energies are enjoying technology learning curves, that the growth is on S-curves. And that's similar to what we have seen in the diffusion of the technologies, be it the car to 1910, TV, mobiles, the internet, quite familiar S-curves of growth. And now that renewable costs are below those of fossil fuels, growth is likely to continue rising exponentially. On this particular issue, it's reasonable to say that at present, the rapid approach is much more accurate because new technologies simply have been growing exponentially, not in a linear way. And a lot of the linear models use cost structures for renewables which are actually out of date quite quickly in a fast-changing world. So one example that we often use is we take the cost of solar in the United States, which, according to the NPS scenario of the IEA, is $105 per megawatt hour in the publication that came out in November last year. Now, most other commentators, such as Lazard, such as BNEF, such as IRENA, would argue that actually the cost of the LCOE in the US is closer to $50. Mm -hmm. So there's a really big difference between the costs. And as a result of different cost structures, there's a dramatic difference in the growth rate that the two scenarios are forecasting. And I should just emphasise one more time, it's once more a kind of difference between an academic and a market perspective. So, Academics will want peer-reviewed data, which by definition is a couple of years out of date. They want it to be completely accurate, and they'll be very conservative, shall we say, looking forward. Again, in the markets, we're focusing on the balance of probability. We take the latest data, we're looking forward, and we're seeing really quite different cost structures both today and forward.
0: Hmm. Yeah. In fact, it's not uncommon to see one of these new outlook papers or scenario papers come out in which their forecast for the price of wind and solar in, say, 2030 or 2040 is the price that it already is the day the paper comes out. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah. I mean, precisely the IEA... Sorry, let me be clear. I'm not criticizing IEA. It's one of their particular scenarios. The IEA NPS scenario for 2040 as you say, has a projected cost of solar at $50 per megawatt more or less what it is today.
0: I mean, that's almost like a very average, not interesting price for solar today, right? The interesting prices for solar today, the ones that are making headlines are more in the $25 to $30 range. And oftentimes, those are actually solar with storage. So you have to wonder when IEA comes out with an outlook based on prices like that.
1: Yeah, actually, this point you make about interesting prices and cutting-edge prices, an extremely important one. People often think that it's superior to take global average prices. If you look at other energy transitions, what you find is that actually it's the cutting-edge price which matters. And the reason why it's very simple is because opportunity and growth flows to those areas which are getting the lowest prices. So if you're getting very, very low solar, you're getting $20 to $30 solar, $20 to $30 wind, then actually quite quickly you're going to find – Demand for that energy growing faster than in those places where it's still 70 or 80, which are holding the averages back. Exactly. So it does matter to think about cutting edge. And that, precisely as you say, is where it's actually game over. The costs of the renewable electricity are now so far below those of fossil fuels that there's really very little debate anymore.
0: Yeah, you're reminding me now of an article I wrote, oh my gosh, it was probably a decade ago now, where I just said, I think we've reached the tipping point. I think we've reached the point where renewables will become cheaper than Fossil fuels—they already had in a few limited circumstances even back then—and that there's no way to turn that clock back. Like renewables are just going to keep getting cheaper, and there's no way that fossil fuels are ever going to get an edge again or capture the marginal demand, which is, I think, what you were just talking about there. You know, it's the lowest, newest PPA price that's going to capture the marginal demand in many cases.
1: Yes, and as I will talk about in a minute, that's of course. Particularly important issue in countries such as India where demand is rising. Right. I should say, by the way, if you were making these arguments 10 years ago, that was very far sighted.
0: Well, Michael Liebreich was quick to join me, so I had that <laughs> company anyway. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's very impressive because I remember even six or seven years ago trying to make arguments like this and just being really quite uncertain because there were many, many counter arguments at the time where we weren't clear. Maybe it was Chinese manufacturers who were artificially keeping prices low, maybe it's all about subsidy. Well, you recall, Chris, very well how it used to be. And now most of those arguments are behind us. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even though there are still lots of agencies like EIA that if you read deeply into their forecasts, you don't really see a recognition of that yet, I don't think.
1: Yeah, that's quite strange. And that's, again, why we felt it was important just to focus on the facts of the case. You know, you've always got to ask forecasters, if you're forecasting relatively low growth for renewable energy technologies, then what cost structure are you using when you make those forecasts? Yeah.
0: All right. Well, the next feature that you explored on this question is whether the two narratives see policy as being
1: static or dynamic. So, how about that question? So, the policy question is very important because – The gradual approach makes an argument which, on face value, looks extremely reasonable. The argument is to say, look, we can only take into account policy actions that we can see today, because after all, take the US Clean Air Act, policy can get reversed. And therefore, we can only take policies that we know will happen, seems conservative and reasonable.
0: And that won't be overturned in some new political dynamic.
1: Yeah. And- The rapid approach takes, again, a kind of market way of looking at stuff. It says, look, policy will tend to move with technology. And as the cost of renewables falls, so policymakers, especially in energy importers, are emboldened to change their policies. So, rapid tends to take a slightly more holistic perspective on the pressure's facing policymakers, especially outside the US and in countries that import a lot of their energy from abroad. So take China and India. They've got a huge pollution problem. So as you know, there's a million people in India who are dying of diseases related to fossil fuels. There's 140 million people breathing air 10 times over the World Health Organization. Safe level in northern India. And that, of course, is at a time when their energy consumption per capita is 10 times lower than in the United States. So they've got a huge pollution problem and they're looking for ways to solve it. They also have very significant energy dependency. So in China and India, about three quarters of their oil is being imported from abroad. And in a world which is becoming more fragmented, Having a lot of your energy coming from abroad is, again, something that policymakers would like to avoid. And then you have the economic argument energy imports are up to half of Indian total imports. So these policymakers also want to lead and they want to build new industries for the future. So there are many pressures, and this means that they're likely to embrace new energy technologies. And indeed, this is what we're seeing. So the lower the price of solar and wind, the higher the burden that policymakers are tending to place on coal and gas. So, for example, the lower the price of EV, the more the number of cities and territories which are talking about banning conventional cars from city centres. And I think it's worth here emphasising that the US is a real outlier and not a criticism, but just an observation that four out of five people in the world live in countries that import fossil fuels. So the US is in a quite special position but many other countries don't have that kind of luxury.
0: Hmm. Yeah. When you were talking about, when we're thinking about policy from a perspective of what's gradual and what's rapid, the first thing that popped to my mind was this banning internal combustion vehicles near city centers. I mean, that's something that no gradualist view of policy evolution is ever going to contemplate. And it can happen in a heartbeat. It can happen, you know, one day there's business as usual. And then five years later, there's no internal combustion engines in the middle of town. Very difficult to anticipate that sort of thing.
1: It is. And again, I suppose this is why the kind of most likely approach that we tend to use in financial markets is sometimes better than the, I'm absolutely certain approach that that the gradualists prefer, because we don't know which cities and when, and we can see very, very clearly the direction of travel. And this actually is a Again, a very interesting and relevant point that you can see the increasing numbers of carbon taxes, the increasing rates of carbon taxes, the increasing numbers of people all around the world placing pressure upon their governments to take action, governments starting to react. And it would be a brave analyst who suggests that that gets reversed.
0: (laughs) You know, you're also reminding me now, I had the privilege of being a minor contributor to a recently published paper in the literature on how we deal with uncertainty in energy forecasting. And we talked about black swans and sort of dead swans, you know, and I think this is a highly relevant question here as to how we deal with these uncertain, even hard to establish
1: probability on outcomes, but still highly impactful ones. Yeah, I was debating this issue with my colleague, Harry Benham, the other day, and he made a very good point. He said, look, almost all black swans are going to be events which speed up the transition. So that is to say, if you get shocks, or weather shocks, or financial shocks, or physical shocks, then they're highly likely to encourage policymakers to act and innovators to innovate in financial markets to continue to shift capital. And it's quite hard to think of a black swan. Which would retard an energy transition. Yeah, no,
0: that's right. I think the surprises are going to favor the disruptors. Yes. Yeah. I'm also thinking now about this sudden rash of natural gas bans for new construction that's starting to sort of sweep the United States here. Again, it's driven by a consciousness of the carbon emissions problem. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's a policy evolution that anybody had on their policy map going forward.
1: No, and I think you are likely to see that being replicated in other locations, again I talk quite a lot about China and India, but as the cost of the alternatives falls, then that emboldens policymakers mm. to take what is actually a very popular choice in almost every country in the world, which is to replace fossils with renewables. And and what policymakers then find is that it's not only is it popular and cheaper and quite quick, but it solves, as I say, these energy import problems, the pollution problems, and gets them re-elected.
0: Yeah, right. That last bit is so key. (laughs) Not coincidentally. (laughs) And you know, that's something you never see called out in a forecast from IEA or EIA. Interesting. All right, so finally, you examine the different ways that these two narratives view the pathways for emerging markets and how they will power their economic growth while we're supposed to be leaving fossil fuels behind and deploying renewables
1: instead. So what are some of the key differences there? So the gradual approach tends to see the emerging markets copying developed market patterns of development. And that, once more, seems incredibly reasonable. You know, you and I have had the pleasure and the privilege of driving gas-based cars for the last few decades and coal power. And why shouldn't the people of the emerging markets have the same privilege? And They argue that fossil fuels are the key to development, and as we develop, so must the emerging markets. That's basically the argument. Again, it seems extremely reasonable. The counter-argument, the rapid argument, simply says, look, the emerging markets in this, as in any area, will simply take the best and cheapest technology to meet their growing needs for electricity and transport. And increasingly, that technology is renewables because they're cheaper, they're cleaner, they're faster, and of course, they're domestic. So the analogy, as you know, is often made with the emerging market telecoms leapfrog. Why would you go to fix when you could go straight to mobile? Why would you use technologies which are outdated? So whilst emerging markets will, of course, continue to use some fossil fuels – The argument then goes that actually all the growth is going to come from renewables. And if you look at the kind of policies being put forward by the governments of China and India, some of these sort of cities like Shenzhen driving completely on electric buses and electric taxis, the desire of India to have only electric vehicle sales after 2030, and the desire of all of these countries to shift away from pollutive imported energy sources, you very quickly get the kind of sense that actually – This emerging market energy leapfrog not just is likely to happen, but must happen.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are generally at least an hour long. In addition to two full new episodes each month, subscribers can also view interactive transcripts of our interviews and explore our extensive show notes with links to all of the research resources and news items for each episode. Our subscription podcast works in all podcast apps and players, including iTunes, and is downloadable. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information we can produce, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. 100% of the revenue that makes the Energy Transition Show possible comes from listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. There are several ways to become a subscriber. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year or 5 a month. Monthly subscriptions are just $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer half-priced annual subscriptions for universities. Students can purchase individual subscriptions, or professors can purchase bulk subscriptions for their classes. Numerous educators now use the Energy Transition Show as coursework, and their testimonials are available on request. And finally, we offer site licenses with group discounts on annual subscriptions for all members of institutions, such as corporations, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free, hormone-free, organic, handcrafted, artisan Podcast featuring high quality, cutting edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time energy transition. Now, a quick look at some recent news items. Item one. When we recorded our conversation with Michael Wera in episode 102 way back in early July, I had no way of knowing that PG&E would shut off power to 800,000 accounts, affecting several million people on October 9th, as it de-energized its transmission lines in order to reduce the risk of sparking more wildfires. But that's what happened. And this first, a large-scale use of the strategy revealed that it needs considerable improvements before customers will be adjusted to their new reality. Many people were caught unprepared by the shutoff off announcement, and some areas experienced chaotic scenes of panic as people cleared the shelves of their grocery and hardware stores and lined up in long queues at gasoline stations in last-minute attempts to get ready to be without power for several days. Even civil service agencies were caught unprepared as crews scrambled to figure out how to keep the lights on in a Bay Area tunnels serving a major highway, and a city water department told their customers to be prepared to lose water service as well because they had no backup plan to keep the pumps running without power. And PG&E's own website crashed under extraordinary levels of traffic as people tried to find out if they were in blackout zones, as the systems they used to alert people about impending blackouts also failed. Nine days later, the California Public Utilities Commission convened an emergency meeting and hauled the utility executives in to discuss what went wrong and to demand that the utility do better next time. But PG&E CEO Bill Johnson, who you'll remember as the head of TVA in Russell Gold's book about building transmission lines, as we discussed in episode 98, told the regulators that it will likely take a decade for the company to significantly reduce the need for the so-called public safety power shutoffs. Governor Newsom also harshly criticized the company, blaming them for, quote, prioritizing profit over public safety, mismanagement, inadequate investment in fire safety, and fire prevention and neglect of critical infrastructure. However, in my humble opinion, there's plenty of blame to go around here, and the state, municipal agencies of all kinds, and even the CPUC ought to be equally asking how they can do a better job of alerting citizens and making sure that everyone is prepared and coordinated in the next shutoff, particularly in light of the fact that the rest of the state isn't just sitting around waiting for them to do something. The city of San Jose has begun looking at the possibility of creating a city-owned utility to develop independent microgrids and other measures, and taking over PG&E's assets serving the city in a move known as municipalization, which my town, Boulder, Colorado, has been pursuing since 2011. A CCA called Valley Clean Energy in Yolo County also made a bid for PG&E's distribution assets within their territory. And if you don't remember what a CCA is, listen to episode 79. Log into our website and check out the many links I've put into the show notes about this unfolding story, which will, I'm afraid, be with us for years to come. In fact, the day I am recording this, October 27th, more than 2.5 million people across the Bay Area and Northern California are without power again in another public safety power shutoff event, which may continue for days. The Kincaid Fire, which a PG&E transmission tower is suspected of igniting, rages in Sonoma County, forcing the evacuation of more than 180,000 people in a large area north of the Bay, including the entire cities of Healdsburg and Windsor, and shut down the State Highway 101. Another fire in the Carquinas Strait near Vallejo, which is perilously close to oil refining facilities, shut down Interstate 80. In Southern California, the Tick Fire rages on the north side of Los Angeles, threatening thousands of homes there. Wind gusts between 80 and 100 miles per hour made battling the blazes nearly impossible. Meanwhile, PG&E's stock valuation has plunged, taking into account its new fire-related liabilities. It could even be worthless. And my skeptical summary at the end of episode 102, in which I speculated that a much, much larger solution is going to be needed, including new approaches to providing basic services and property insurance in the state, and maybe even shifting all of the wildfire risk onto the state, looks increasingly probable. And these new dangerous fire conditions, of course, ultimately stem from the shifting climate conditions and the changing shape of the jet stream, as we discussed with Valerie Trouet in her research on tree rings back in episode 65. Welcome to the new normal. Item 2. As we previewed in our discussion with Jesse Burton in Episode 106, South Africa's state-owned utility, Eskom finally had its Integrated Resource Plan, or IRP, approved by the government on October 17th, the first such plan since 2011. And, as expected, it more resembled a collection of handouts to political powers than it did a sensible and scientifically-based approach to procurement, with nuclear power plants and low-emissions coal plants taking most of the focus. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at transitionshow. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.